The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Daniel was a man of God forced to live in worldly Babylon. And you know, Christians are always God's people living in whatever society they're living. You and I are called to be Daniels in America and in our communities. Calvin, in his commentary on Daniel, makes this statement, quote, Here then we observe, as in a living picture, that when God spares and even indulges the wicked for a time, He proves his servants like gold and silver, so that we ought not to consider it a grievance to be thrown into the furnace of trial while profane men enjoy the calmness of repose. You know, this is a very key statement. To know that when the world seems to be winning, God is proving your metal like pure gold and silver. And consider the ramifications of that statement. There is not a time in your life ever that God isn't molding you. There is never a time in your life that God isn't working to bring you to a place of holiness for his glory and your well-being. It doesn't matter if it's time of joy and peace or immense turmoil and fear. God is in all those details. So let's look at the world we live in, because in order to understand Daniel, we must realize that the Babylon which Daniel and his true friends were, or three friends were living was a very secular worldly place, and that their initial experiences there were indeed designed to blot out their remembrance of their God and their own social structure. We see this in several ways. For one thing, Nebuchadnezzar ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his court's official, to choose young men who could be easily molded by their new environment and by all the riches and the food and all the things that he could put on them. You see, it's interesting that he didn't start off by threatening them. He didn't start off by torturing them or making life miserable. He started off by lavishing upon them the wonderful riches of this great city the absolute best food that they could offer from the king's own menu, living in luxury. 
And isn't that like the world today? Christians are not always tempted by trial. They're tempted by the beauty and the success that life has to offer. And so this is where they started with these men. Now notice that Nebuchadnezzar's intention in the altering of the young men's names. The Hebrew names of these young men were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what we can see from the Hebrew is that the names they had were given for a very specific reason, to remind them of their spiritual condition and whose God they served. Daniel and Mishael both contain the syllable El, which means God and is the basis of the frequently uh, plural name Elohim. Daniel means God is my judge. Meshiel means who is like God. The other two names, Hananiah and Azariah, both contain a shortened, firm, shortened form of the name Jehovah. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Azariah means Jehovah is my helper. So the very names that these men had caused them to think about God and to think about their personal life and their standing before Jehovah. But now, deported to a strange and pagan land, their names were changed, and their names were changed to mimic names of these foreign gods. It was a way of saying that those who had been servants of Jehovah were no longer his servants. It was a way that Nebuchadnezzar designed to try to remove all remembrance and dedication and devotion to these men and switch it to devotion to Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. You know, one thing the world always tries to do, and we see it every day in our culture, is to, uh, to try to change the names of things, the names that we, we hold important. For example, sin used to mean rebellion against God and his righteous law. But today it means ignorance or mistakes or something that we can work together to do better at. All these words are recultured and changed to remove their meaning from their true names. And this is, this is a great danger for sure. But although it's a danger, if the truth behind these words is deep in your heart, they cannot be removed. If you're truly following Christ and he is at the center of your life, what man does on the outside can never touch the inside. True Christians will persevere because God will strengthen them to stand against the culture. How are Christians standing today? Unfortunately, many Christians hold their, uh, or many churches build their congregations by appealing to people where they are. They want to identify with them, and they kind of water down the culture to bring them in, sprinkling a little Bible there. But the reality is, and a danger that has been proven over and over again for decades, is that what you win them with is what you win them to. And it's important that a church put at the center of its foundation the Word of God. It's important that a church put at the very foundation holiness. And so it's important for all of us as individuals to have an understanding of what God wants in our holiness. So we see now that Daniel, 
takes a stand. Perhaps the most important verse in the the first chapter is verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, do you see Daniel's heart here? Yeah, I think this is an area that's often missed. Daniel would not defile himself, but he's gracious in dealing with a eunuch. He asks in kindness. He asks the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. What's your reaction to that? We're only talking food. I mean, what's the big deal? In the New Testament, Paul argues that food's not an issue. You know, he he plays that down. But we're not in the New Testament. We're in the Old Testament, and the law has been stated for very important reasons, for dietary reasons and for the worship of God. So we have a different situation here. But but remember, at this time, Daniel was a very young man. We know later that he, he lived for many, many years, probably dying in his 90s. He lived through four emperors. So at this time, he's probably somewhere between 15 and 17. And it was at this young age that he's taken away from his country, his culture, and he's plunged into a very strange and exciting life of the capital where Nebuchadnezzar has brought him with all the beauty and wonder and luscious foods that could be offered. What choice would you have made? Those of you here who were teenagers and that some of you in your 20s, what would you have done? How would you have faced the riches of this culture? Would we have acted like Daniel and his friends and take a stand? Or would you have gone along and enjoyed the bounty? I mean, after all, you didn't put yourself there. Might as well enjoy it while you're there. But it's a small thing. Yet, this is the point. For it is in the small things that great victories are won. And this is where the decision to live a holy life are made. Not in the big things, but in the small details of life. Because Daniel started out making strong decisions in the details, God used him in the big details. And all of us need to be conscious of that very fact. That it's in those little times when we're alone. And those little choices that we make where the victories are won step by step by step until God has you prepared to use you in a great way. Well, why then must we be holy? Why must we be holy? Daniel is a story of the struggle of the world's people and culture against God's people and God's culture. But it's also a story of men who lived for God by choosing the path of personal discipleship and holiness. This is no contradiction because it is only such persons who actually embody the spiritual standards of the city of God. It is only those who make a lasting impression on the world. A great evangelical bishop of England, John Charles Ryle, wrote a classic study of holiness 
in which he urged holiness upon all who call themselves Christians. After some opening passages in which he described holiness as separation unto God, devotion to God, service to God, being one of and one mind with God and wanting God's will, Ryle went on to detail the reasons for holiness <clears throat> that we have seen here in Daniel. And I want to share some of those with you this morning. But before I do, let me ask you again. Do you consider yourself holy? Do you consider yourself on a pathway to holiness? Let me, let me share some of these with you. Number one, we must be holy because the voice of God in Scripture plainly commands it. Listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now you see, when we accept Christ as Savior, we're declared holy. However, a truly changed heart seeks to be holy in conduct. And that's why the verse says, you also be holy in your conduct. A true relationship with Christ breeds a true walk with Christ. Let me say that again. A true relationship with Christ breeds a true walk with Christ. Why be holy? Because God plainly declares it. Number two, we must be holy because this is the grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Now you'll say, but I thought he came into the world to save sinners. True. But what is he saving them to? A life of holiness. Ephesians 5, when Paul was writing to husbands about wives and how to treat them and relating it to Christ in the church, he said in verses 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, men, you're responsible for the holiness of your wife. Do you seek in your marriage to produce and promote the holiness of your wife? And this is what Christ is doing with the church, that he might present the church holy to him. Many Christians love the benefits of salvation without the obligation to live for Christ, but they cannot have them because Christ came to make them holy just as much as he came to save them from the penalty of their sins. So think about this. If you're fighting against holiness, you're fighting against nothing less than the purpose of the atonement. And what true child of God would ever want to do that? Are you pursuing holiness? Number three, we must be holy 
Because this is the only sound evidence that we have a saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is this so? Well, James speaks of a saving faith and a dead faith. The devils have a dead faith. Oh, they believe in God. They believe Jesus is his son. They believe Jesus came to save his people. But they don't worship him. They don't accept him. They have no desire to be holy. James 2.26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You don't work for salvation, but salvation produces a desire for works. You can't work for your salvation, but true salvation produces a desire for works. A true child of God loves nothing more than to live for a Savior and worship Him and be holy. Number four, we must live holy because this is the only proof that we love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Jesus made this quite clear. In John 14, verse 15, He said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this is, this is Jesus talking, okay? This isn't me. These are the words of Jesus. John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 15, 14. You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. How could this be more clearly spoken? Let me make a radical statement right now. Unless you pursue holiness, you have no faith. Unless you pursue pursue holiness. You have no faith. Number five, we must be holy because this is the only sound evidence that we are true children of God. Do you remember how Jesus made this point to the Pharisees? They claimed to be children of Abraham and therefore in good standing with God. But then Jesus said to him in John 8, 39, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. Paul said it later in Romans, noting that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, Romans 8, 14. The Spirit of God does not lead you to sin. The Spirit of God does not leave you to your own desires. If you are being led by the Spirit, you will pursue holiness. There's no way around it. So are you pursuing a holy life? Number six, we must be holy because this is the most likely way to do good for others. Oh, the world has its benevolent programs. 
I mean, we've all been moved by what's happening with these, with these uh, hurricanes and how people have just sent money and gone down to work. And praise God, that's an amazing thing, and we should be thankful for that. But a true child of God goes as the hand of God. A true child of God goes in the strength of the Holy Spirit and brings with him the Word of God, brings with him the love of God. And everything they do to pursue and help is done in the name of God. And that's a big difference. Number seven, we must be holy because our present comfort depends much upon it. Not all suffering is directly related to a suffering person's sin. Christ's word about the man born blind in John 9, 3 should answer that question very clearly. But although all suffering does not come directly from sin, it's very clear that all sin produces suffering. Given a chance, we might choose to do something different. We might choose to pursue what we want and what we think is more important. But remember what was said in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If we turn from this good, we turn away from true happiness. Because true happiness comes from God. The key is we've got to get our mind off what we believe is happiness. We've got to remove ourselves from the brainwashing we've allowed to flow over us for years and years and years where we think we know what makes us happy. Because only God knows what makes you truly happy. And only God knows how to show you what makes you truly happy. And only God knows how to work happiness in you in the most difficult times. Number eight, we must be holy because without holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. The author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the, <clears throat> for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is not only essential for life, it is life. Holiness is life for a true child of God. So where do you see yourself in this whole thing? Is he at the foundation of everything you do? Is he at the very center of your life, your calling, your goals, your dreams, your aspirations, your marriage, your friendships? Is he right in the middle guiding you step by step? Is the spirit of God real in your life? If you have any questions, then please look through these eight things and examine your heart. Is God at the focus of everything you do? Now, of course, this begs the question, can I be holy? I mean, the objection we'll likely hear, and you may be thinking this yourself, is this is all well and good, 
but it's almost impossible possible to be holy in this world. It's almost impossible to be holy in my daily life, on my job, with the people I work for. How, how can anybody be holy in the life we live in today, the way the world is? Well, if you're thinking that, then let me turn you right back to Daniel, who was not only resolved not to defile himself with the king's food and wine, but was also willing to put the matter to test. And again, this goes back, I think, to the sweet spirit of Daniel. He wasn't a fist pounding in your face, this is what God says. He said, look, I'm talking to people who don't know the true God. I'm talking to people who don't have a clue about Jehovah. I'm talking to people who have just defeated our nation, have taken the Jewish king captive, have taken us over, have taken all the gold and silver out of our, out of our treasury that was dedicated to our God, Jehovah, and now it's over here. They know nothing of my God. So Daniel comes at it with a very sweet spirit. He says, look, I'm not going to define myself, but look, can I prove it to you? L l let me show you what I mean. And so in Daniel 1, verse 12 through 13, he says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Reasonable? No? Nah? Makes perfect sense. Not being argumentative. But listen, I've been through this. I've seen it. Let, let me show you. You know, maybe he also said, you can't believe how you'll benefit too. So the guard agreed to the test. And at the end of the 10 days, the young men looked healthier and better nourished than anyone else in the protocol. The other young men who ate the royal food and everyone was there didn't look anything like Daniel and his three friends. And the text concludes by noting that at the end of the three years of the training, when the king brought these young protégés before him to test them, we read in verse, Daniel 1 verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom, and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Not just a little better, ten times better. You talk about a testimony. You talk about a testimony of love and compassion as Daniel just, just lives it. He's not going to be defiled. But he's going to minister to those who don't understand with a heart of compassion and love. And he lays it down before them. Who knows who in the kingdom benefited from that test? Maybe all the other guys started eating like Daniel. Who knows? But Daniel was a wonderful testimony of grace, a wonderful testimony of mercy and love and compassion. And every one of us 
have been called to live that way before our world today. All the things we read about Daniel, though the circumstances are different, our calling is exactly the same. To pursue holiness, to walk with the Lord, to allow the Spirit to live through us, to know the Word of God, so then when challenged by the world, we can in love and compassion say, look, try this. I know you don't get it. I know you might be hostile. I know that many Christians leave a lot to be desired. But look at this. Look what can happen to your life mentally, spiritually, and physically when you live for holiness. Never say, if I live for God, I'm going to lose out. If I take a stand for God, I may lose that job. If I take a stand for God, I I may lose this or that. Never say that. Because Matthew 6.33 says very clearly, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. They may come from different directions. They may come from areas you didn't dream possible. But they will come. And your heart will be welded to the Spirit of God. And your walk will be free and clean. And your heart will be rejoicing because you're living for your Savior. And what a way to be prepared for heaven. Amen? Amen. To have the Spirit of God living through us. Gee, dare I say it again? He must increase and I must decrease. That's what it's all about, folks. But when it's done, the rewards are out of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice with Daniel. We rejoice in the amazing things you did through the heart of this Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how we're going to see down the road more trials, more testing. But they refused to give up. They purposed in their hearts to be holy before the God who made them holy. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would do a powerful work in the hearts of all of us to not fear tomorrow, But rest in today the joy, the holiness that is ours. And may you be praised in the hearts and lives of every one of us. And we'll ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. All God's people said, amen. God bless.